This is History West Midlands. The end of the Second World War ushered in a period of great prosperity in the black country region of the English Midlands. It began two decades of full employment and high wages, widespread urban regeneration with thousands of new homes being built, and new labour-saving appliances changing the domestic lives of men, women and children forever. Many of the products in these homes came from black country companies, which were now known around the world for their innovations. And it was in these towns that the vital components for the cars which fueled so much of Britain's post-war recovery were made. Wherever you looked, the area, Britain's industrial heartland, was changing. But prosperity had to be maintained and jobs had to be filled. So families came, first from Europe and Ireland, and then from the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent, to help the black country continue to forge ahead. In this programme, the first of a new series, historian and author Simon Briarcliffe of the Black Country Living Museum explores this post-war story with History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Simon, if we can begin by getting into a time machine, And going back to VE Day, 8th of May 1945, and we land in the black country, what would we have seen? Well, all the big events, like the looking at the royals and things like that, was obviously all in London. But there were parties and celebrations everywhere. I think the mood was a bit mixed. So there was definitely a sense of relief and a sense of celebration, but probably also a bit of grief mingled in. So... In some places, I think in Bilston, they had a kind of a military service to commemorate those who'd been lost. There were still people that had been lost just days before from the black country. But I think, generally speaking, it was kind of celebrations wherever you go. Everybody was, I think, waiting for Churchill's speech at about three o'clock. And after that, really, the parties kicked off. Probably was bunting everywhere, but they were limited by cloth rationing to only spend a certain amount per yard of material. So you had red, white and blue, not Union Jack buntings. But you did have... Union flags hanging up, but also American flags and Soviet flags. And people were recorded as waving pictures of Churchill and the King and Queen and Stalin, which is one of my favourite images and one you can't really imagine now of a picture of Stalin waving through the streets of Wolverhampton. The war was still going, obviously, and there was a lot of economic worries, I think. But I think probably for the day, people were sort of putting them out of their mind. And what was the state of the black country? How did it fare during the Second World War? Surprisingly well, really. Um, Compared to some areas, it weathered the storms of the 20s and 30s quite well because it diversified its industry. It wasn't relying on single industries like some places in the northeast or the cotton districts, for instance, in Lancashire. And it made things that the war effort needed So every industry was already working in metal. So Kenricks, for instance, who were making saucepans, started making hand grenades. And Salters, who were best known for springs and scales, were making bits of Spitfire. So there was huge numbers of people employed in all this war work, had this amazing productive capacity ready there at the end of the war. And actually, it was really there and raring to go. 
it hadn't suffered a huge amount of aerial attack. So compared to Birmingham or Coventry, which had been almost raised to the ground in their centres, there'd been bombs in West Bromwich and Wolverhampton and and all over the place, but they're nothing like the devastation that was caused in other places. So it was really kind of on hold and ready to go with whatever was needed next, I think. And economically, where was Britain at this time? Because we'd won the war, British Empire still largely existed. Were we in a strong state or had the war really damaged Britain? You wouldn't quite call Britain bankrupt, but it was definitely had spent most of its coffers on prosecuting the war. It was reliant on martial aid from America, so we received much more aid than Germany ever did, for instance, in Reconstruction was reliant on the Lend-Lease program from America as well, like millions and millions of dollars of loans coming in to kind of refinance the economy. The Labour government took a much more of a centralised approach to the economy than the Conservatives, the national government before the war ever had, and made big plans to kind of recapitalise the economy through manufacturing industry, particularly through exports. So it had a big problem with balance of payments, that it was spending a lot more on bringing things in from abroad than it was exporting. So everything was pushed onto companies that could build things for export. So there's adverts from companies like Judgeware saying, we're sorry that we can't, aren't able to supply the domestic market as much as we'd like to. Everything's going for export, but soon, soon you'll be able to buy Judgeware again. And uh, so they made big plans with sort of revitalising the car industry and things like that, uh, that the black country was really well placed to be able to take uh, advantage of. My father was at a street party in Oldbury, And I never asked him what his hopes and fears were on that day. What do you think they would have been? I suppose there was definitely still fears there. People were worried about what was going to happen with the rest of the war that was still going on. People weren't really sure about what was going to come next. I think it's still too early for people to be thinking about the Cold War. Perhaps not everybody trusted the Soviets, but if you've got photos of Stalin in the streets. You know, They were still hailed as the liberators and the part of the winning coalition for the war. I think people were perhaps worried that it would just go back to like things were before the war, when there was mass unemployment in various parts of the country. I think people were hoping for a slightly new world order, not in that, that dramatic a term, but secure employment, I think, not to be cast out whenever there was a dip in the economy good working conditions, better wages so that you don't have to struggle by, but you can buy something decent for your family. And I think the other thing that was on the top of everybody's minds was enough places to live. So although there wasn't huge numbers of homes destroyed in the backcountry, they already had a massive housing shortage and had for hundreds of years, really. Still loads of places that would have been categorised as slums, so really unfit places for people to live. Lots of people short of somewhere to live, lodging with others, staying with others, and overcrowded conditions. So the housing shortage was front-page news, really, in local newspapers. So they were really hoping for somebody to do something about that, I think. And what happened? With the housing shortage, the first thing that happened is people took things into their own hands. So people started moving into old army camps and things, like up on Burton Road in Dudley and the gun emplacement at Stone Cross in West Brom. People just moved into the Nissan huts that troops had been in. That obviously wasn't going to get you very far. So local councils bought in prefabs, so hundreds and hundreds of them. Those didn't tend to be, though, in boroughs where the housing shortage was most acute because in somewhere like Dudley or Oldbury or Rowley Regis, you had a lot of problems with very unsuitable land for building. So it's not just a case of 
people not having built houses, it's that it's really difficult to find somewhere to build the houses. So Wolverhampton and Warsaw were able to build lots of prefabs because they had much bigger kind of peripheral areas of green land that they could build upon. So that went a little way, and some of them are still there. There's still prefabs in Wolverhampton, and they're still very well loved. They were a much better home than a lot of people were used to, all, all mod cons, really. But it took really a huge council housing programme to get anywhere close to meeting the housing shortage. So the amounts of council homes that were being built really, really dwarfed the number of homes that were being built privately right through the 1960s and into the 1970s. Huge estates were planned even during the war. So the Bentley estate in Darleston is a really good example. It was built on Bentley Common, which had basically been a giant tip. It was difficult to do anything with. It was full of industrial waste, um, old coal mines and things like that. And the difficulty with that is that that's hard work and expensive work to clear and make suitable for building, which is why private companies prefer to build suburbs on fields. It's only really the councils that could work up the finances to clear those lands and, and build upon them. So you get big estates that start to be built. Firstly, of really nice, really large council houses. Eventually, when governments came in later on and decided that they weren't building enough, they scaled back the requirements for the square footage of the house and the number of bedrooms and things like that and started to give out subsidies for high-rise buildings. So the flats started to get higher and higher and higher. And by the late 60s, you got 24-storey blocks in Smethwick and that kind of thing. But for the most part, people didn't really want to live in a high-rise flat. They much prefer to live in a detached or a semi-detached home on an estate. And that was the first attempt to meet the housing shortage. And how did industry evolve after the Second World War? Black country industry had typically been workshop-based. So going back to Victorian times, a lot of things were done in smaller workshops by what they used to call small masters, so somebody employing just a few people, which didn't really lend itself to production at scale, but did enable kind of the expertise to develop. So one of the things that had been happening before the war is that was starting to change. Larger and larger factories were being started to build. But even at the end of the Victorian period, really, you start to get great big factories like GKN in Heath Street in Smethwick, huge great complex of factories that are employing lots of people all at once. Again, it was still a bit different to, say, a shipyard or a cotton mill, which could employ thousands of people on one job at one point. But it was starting to change, and that really, really accelerated after the war had finished. More and more foundries and forges started to mechanise to bring in a degree of automation so that people were able to become skilled at working a machine and not just unskilled labour there, pouring out molten metal into moulds or something like that, but really starting to invest in the workforce as a skilled workforce and not just as another kind of cog in the machine, really. And the traditional industries on which the black country had been built, coal mining, what happened to them? Well, they were still there. So there were still coal mines in the black country right through to 1968. But they'd passed their peak maybe almost 100 years before. So the amount of coal being dug was declining from the 1860s onwards. Other pits in other parts of the country were becoming much more efficient, much easier to access. So there's still loads of coal underneath the black country. If we go down in some of the shafts on our site here, we can get bits of coal out of the ground. It's just not economically viable to do it at scale. So there would be new pits built at the beginning of the century, like Baggeridge and Samwell Park, and those were mechanised. So that's where you started to see the great big tall spoil heaps, whereas older-fashioned pits were a lot smaller, they created a, this kind of landscape of little hills and little hollows here and there that made it very difficult to do anything with. 
But when coal mines were nationalised by the Labour government in 1947, they did pour a load of investment into Bagridge and Samwell Park and these other pits that were still going. And they became really productive, really efficient. But by 1968, it was very evident it was more efficient to do it elsewhere. There was no need for any distinctive black country coal industry anymore. But the unusual thing, I guess, about the black country as an industrial region is that it always had its local specialities. So Cradley Heath is associated with chain making and Woodland Hall with lock making. And those continued. And you can still find that even in the present day in a slightly different way. In Cradley Heath, where they're used to having chains made by hand, often by women workers, that kind of handmade chain industry that was definitely starting to decline a lot more machinery coming in and that made it a lot less locally specific so you didn't need the generations of expertise to do it but with lock making that boomed so they stayed plenty of them in little workshops doing specialist things but also huge new factories Yale and Chubb and big names like that were built something like 90% of all the locks in the world were made in Willen Hall which is just an unbelievable statistic really but it was really really the center of a very specialized trade so those old traditions had survived but a lot of them had to change and adapt build new factories build new systems drawing upon the expertise of the past but adapting to the kind of mass production needs of the present really and i believe that government strategy was that the recovery was going to be export-led after the Second World War, and that the motor industry was going to play a major role in that. How did that strategy affect the black country? Before the war, the the motoring industry really had been middle class and above. So if you had a car, you were doing pretty well. It was something really to be proud of. It wasn't something that any ordinary family would expect to own. Black country had had its own motor industry. In the um, first part of the century, we made motorcycles and cars and buses and all sorts but that had really declined by the 1930s and by 1945 there wasn't really a large-scale motor industry but there was in Birmingham and Coventry huge huge factories in fact Longbridge in Birmingham the Standard Triumph factory in Coventry all those kinds of things there's huge huge numbers of factories and they all needed bits to go in the cars so they didn't make everything on site they assembled it so the black country was there to build every single bit that could possibly go into a car. And although we often associate the car industry with Birmingham and Coventry, some of the Austin Healy's that were produced in inverted commas at Longbridge, the chassis had been made at John Thompson in Wolverhampton, the panelling had been made at Doughty Bolton Paul in Wolverhampton, they were assembled at the Jensen lines in West Bromwich and some of the extras put on there. It was only then that they went to Longbridge to have the last little bits uh, fitted and they came out of the so-called Birmingham factory. But really the black country was absolutely crucial to providing every single different part that would go in a car. And so although it's not the most glamorous side of it, I suppose it was really the heart of the car industry. So it was an absolute boom time for the black country in that respect because there were so many factories needed to supply the car industry that was so important for Britain's export And every town had its foundries that were producing gearboxes or brake casings or whatever. And there's still some of that even in the modern day, even though the the British car industry is completely transformed from what it had been. So we've got an era then of really great prosperity here in the black country. Yeah, that's it. And that's so unusual for the black country because it was a prosperity that 
wasn't just limited to the industrialists, but was across the whole of society. So for the first time, really, the benefits of an industrial boom passed on to the working classes just as much as the upper and middle classes. So wages went up. A large degree of that because there was a labour shortage after the war. There was all this work that needed doing. So people were able to negotiate for better wages, better working conditions, social life to do with the factory, all that kind of thing. Better wages means that you could buy more things. And because we were making the stuff that people wanted to buy in the black country, people were able to buy the things and their homes were able to be better and, and all that sort of thing. We made record players and washing machines and everything that you might want to put in your house just to make your life a little bit easier. So absolutely, it was a time of prosperity. A lot of working class in the black country in particular had been used to potential unemployment at the um, turn of trade to be exploited by their bosses. And that suddenly that wasn't the case. And firms had to treat their workers with respect and decent wages and all that sort of thing. So it was quite a unique time in the history of the black country. I remember people telling me at the time, as a little lad, that you could walk out of one job in the morning and go and get another one in the afternoon because there was such a labour shortage. What did industry do about that? Well, the first thing was to try and pay better wages and encourage people from other industries. So a lot of people moved from things like public transport, which employed a lot of people, and was a reasonably good employer before the war, but you could earn so much better wages working in a car components factory than you could on the buses. So they tried to tempt people with better wages, better conditions, nice canteens at work and all that kind of thing. Government also recognised it as a problem, and they put into place some recruitment schemes overseas. Their initial ones were in the kind of the war-torn parts of Eastern Europe, places like Ukraine, and there were already... Polish exiles living in this country. So they tried employing people from overseas. That was always going to be of limited numbers because there just wasn't enough people to do all the work that was necessary. So they began to rely on immigrants from other places as well. The biggest numbers of people immigrating into the UK right through the 1960s were from Ireland and from Poland. And there were people immigrating looking for work. The Irish have long held that position at the top of the leaderboard of people moving in, but they tend to get forgotten because the other factor that was a major change in the post-war period was that people started to move looking for work from particularly the Caribbean and South Asia. Those tended to get the headlines because, of course, their skin was a different colour. It was something different for the black country and, of course, every part of the country where they settled. Not that there hadn't been people of colour living in Britain for the previous few hundred years. It was just that now the numbers were so much more, people became used to working with people of different backgrounds, different colours, different heritages alongside them at work. There was a few companies that put out recruitment schemes. So Midland Red had a recruiting office in Dublin. The NHS looked to the Caribbean and to South Asia for nurses and junior doctors. But a lot of the time it was just that there was this huge amount of work needed doing and people were able to move as free citizens, often of the British Empire or of the Commonwealth. They were able to move to this country and take those jobs. They were often the worst jobs, often the jobs that nobody else wanted to do, the hardest labour and that kind of thing. But without those jobs having been done, this prosperity, this boom would have collapsed because there just wouldn't have been enough capacity to meet the needs of the economy. 
So could you summarise the major ways in which the black country had changed if I then got back into my time machine and landed at the end of the 1960s? How would it have changed from that V-Day party? I think you'd have noticed a lot of differences, really. One of the biggest ones would be in the general environment that you were looking at. So the black country had always been famous for its pollution and its dereliction, kind of where it's got its name from. But it was notorious as it's one of the most derelict parts of the country. And up to a quarter of it was just useless because of uh, the way it had been left. So that changed because councils cleared the space. They turned them into housing, into new sites for factories, into parks and all kinds of things. A lot of those spaces would have been taken up with new housing some of them have been high-rise, so that would look very different to the kind of slums and poor terraced houses that you'd been used to in 1945, I suppose. New sorts of factories, much larger. You'd start to see the emergence of these big kind of shed-like factories that you get nowadays, steel frame buildings, rather than the old brick ones. Still plenty of all of those things around, but the environment would have looked quite different. And generally speaking, people would have felt very differently about it Still a lot of pride in the region, I think, but now it was because it was an economically powerful region, somewhere where there was good jobs and good places and good things to do. The towns would have been bustling, the high streets would have been buzzing. People had a decent amount of money, things to spend it on. Their homes would have been a lot more comfortable and modern with new appliances and things, so it would have felt much more prosperous, much more comfortable much more modern, really, a very different world in some ways to 1945, which reflects that kind of old-fashioned black country that we think about sometimes. How did this period that seems so long ago affect today's black country? I think a lot of what we think of as the identity of the black country as a historically industrial region, as a working-class area, really stems from this time before the 1970s, when we look back upon a prosperous, successful industrial area, after this, industry started to collapse, economic problems started to emerge, and we've ended up with a, if not a completely deindustrialized area, then definitely a post-industrial society in the black country where it's not really the same thing at all. But it's interesting that just before this period was the kind of the pinnacle of this prosperity and the pinnacle of what makes it an industrial region, and that's quite a striking contrast to how we live today. The power of history is not that we can learn direct lessons from the past, but we can see that things were done differently and there were different outcomes. So just because we're living one way today doesn't mean that it always needs to be that way. If it could be different in the past, then it could be different in the future. So although the black country now is characterised a lot of the time by deprivation, it wasn't always that way. Simon, you've just published a book entitled Forging Ahead, From Austerity to Prosperity. When you were conducting the research behind that book, what surprised you? I think it's really exactly that trajectory that it ended up in a time of such prosperity for the black country. The overall impression we get of the post-war era in Britain is that it was a time of decline. So from a once great imperial trading manufacturing nation through to the post-industrial world that we live in today. But actually that wasn't the case. Britain was still a massively important trading, producing and exporting country. So something like a quarter of the exports across the world came from Britain in the 1950s. It was still a manufacturing country, 
That was still the basis of the economy, and that was prosperous. So we don't need to think about in terms of the decline of the economy or decline in skills or innovation. Certainly, relatively speaking, compared to West Germany or Japan, so economies that were improving during this period, we lost out on a kind of share of the world market. But that doesn't mean that we were declining absolutely. The black country was prospering like it never had before. And that really took me by surprise because it's easy to fall into that trap of thinking that the black country was its peak in this grand Victorian period when we were building the Great Exhibition or building the anchor for the Titanic to sail across the world. But actually, you could argue that one of its industrial peaks was the 50s and 60s when it was uh, as productive as it has ever been and more prosperous. And that prosperity was more widely spread than it ever had been before. What was that prosperity based on? The prosperity was certainly based on its industry. So there's a lot of money coming into the region to build things that we would put in cars and we would export across the world. And there was money coming in from all over the world for things and expertise that was very specific to the black country. But I think what made it so widespread was that the wages had improved. It was more widely shared. People had a safety net with the advent of the NHS and the welfare state, so they didn't have to worry about times of unemployment and put aside for that. And that meant that they were more comfortable to spend money, and that's really what keeps an economy going, is that people are willing to spend, to buy new things for their house, to buy a new car, to go on holiday, and to keep consumption going. So, Simon, where did it all go wrong? Well, I always think decline is such a subjective word, isn't it? Because a lot of people will say the 1970s and think about the oil crisis in 1973 and the miners' strikes and all that kind of thing. And a lot of blame is put onto trade unions in the 1970s for demanding too much and wanting too much. But actually, if you look at it from the other side of the coin, this was a time when income inequality was at its lowest and when working class wages were at their highest. It was the most even and equal the country had ever been. And if you were in a good working class job, you had better prospects than you ever had before. The reasons it changed are probably debated and fairly controversial, I'm sure. But the government responded in different ways to different kinds of shocks, including by taking some industries into complete nationalisation, like the car industry. And you could probably argue that mismanagement of that or failure to respond to international competition or or whatever was a reason that the car industry collapsed. There were also some conscious changes. So when Margaret Thatcher was elected, she was very keen to reorganise the economy away from industry to take down the power of the trade unions and all of that, and to refocus the economy on finance and financial services. And she was willing to sacrifice the livelihoods of a lot of people in working class areas like this in order to achieve that. So yes, you got inflation down, but it also meant that unemployment, which had been just handfuls of people in the 1950s and 1960s, ended up in the millions in the 1980s. So everybody has a different take on what decline means in the context of the last 50 years. But in the black country, I think probably the biggest change was that period in the late 70s and early 1980s when things were consciously changed by national government. So those of us who were born in the post-war baby boom have had the best of it. I think you probably argue that, yeah. If you were born in the 40s or 50s, you grew up with really good job prospects, the likelihood of a good pension at the end of it, a welfare state that looked after 
everything. Like right at the beginning, the NHS paid for your dentistry completely, paid for your glasses completely and all of that sort of thing. And although some of those things have been stripped back quite early on. And uh, yeah, you were really looked after from the cradle to the grave in a way that isn't quite the same anymore. Employers were competing for you to come to work for them, not you having to go through several rounds of interviews to find a job and compete for a job against other people like now. So I think you could probably make that argument, yeah. So then as now, the black country was a great place to live. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody has their own opinion of what the black country means to them nowadays and how great it is a place to live. People complain that it's kind of overshadowed by Birmingham or or whatever, but it still retains a very distinctive identity. You won't find orange chips anywhere else. Uh, You won't find the black country dialect anywhere else. People still want to have an argument about what constitutes the black country and what doesn't. A lot of these things stem from that kind of pride in the area that was really instilled in the 50s and 60s when we really had something to boast about. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now watch the History West Midlands film Forging Ahead, Austerity to Prosperity in the Black Country, 1945-1968, to at our website, www.historywm.com, or on YouTube. Copies of Simon's book are also available now at the website, as well as from the Black Country Living Museum and Amazon. Watch out for further podcasts in this series, and visit our website for more articles, books and podcasts about this unique region, which did so much to shape the history of Britain and the world beyond. <laughs>